Hey there, Dana Levin here again with the first of our mini-episodes designed to provide practical tips and quick topic reviews for exploration medicine practitioners. I want to introduce you here to Dr. Quinn Duferena, a first-year internal medicine resident at Stony Brook University Hospital in New York. He put together a quick review that fits well with our current polar medicine theme, and I thought it would be a good way to set the tone for this kind of thing in the future. So I'll be back in the next couple of weeks with some more polar med operations, but for now, Let's chill out with some thoughts on hypothermia. Today we'll be discussing hypothermia, what it is, how to recognize it, and how to treat it. We'll be focusing mainly on out-of-hospital therapies, but we'll touch on the modalities used in hospitals as well. To highlight the important aspects of hypothermia, let's go through a case. Let's assume that we have a middle-aged man, let's call him Jack, who decides to go cross-country skiing in rural Maine in early February. Jack, unfortunately, becomes disoriented in a thick tree line, and instead of heading back to his car, goes in the opposite direction as the sun starts to set. And while the temperatures were hovering just around zero when Jack started his excursion, as the sun dips below the horizon, the temperature drops precipitously, negative 10, negative 20 degrees centigrade. His lightweight ski jacket and pants, which were adequate to maintain his body temperature throughout the day with vigorous exercise, begin to fail him now. In an effort to preserve his energy stores, Jack decides to sit beneath a tree and devise a plan, all the while kicking himself for leaving his phone in the car. While he's doing this, his core body temperature begins to slowly decrease from the initial 37 degrees. Let's stop for a moment and recognize that while this is the stereotypical scenario in which someone becomes hypothermic in a very cold, snow-laden environment, it's important to recognize that this also happens in more temperate climates and especially in urban environments as well and has been documented in areas as far south as Florida in the United States. As the night drags on and Jack's temperature drops to 35 degrees Celsius, Jack is now officially hypothermic. Now this is considered mild hypothermia, and generally that includes body temperature ranges from 35 to 32 degrees Celsius. In this state of mild hypothermia, Jack's metabolic rate actually begins to increase. He becomes tachycardic, tachypnic, and maybe even hyperventilates a bit. He begins to shiver, which is involuntary, rapid contraction of the skeletal muscles throughout the body, induced by the hypothalamus, aimed at generating heat and restoring homeostasis. It is also during this mild hypothermia that we see the phenomenon of cold diuresis, at which point the cold induces vasoconstriction in the extremities, leading to a fluid shift to the central core of the body, which leads to a perceived state of hypervolemia, which induces a diuresis. Another common symptom at this stage of hypothermia is that of impaired judgment. Oftentimes, hypothermic individuals will engage in irrational, risky behavior, which could lead to injury or perhaps progressive hypothermia. Fortunately, Jack decides to stay put. He did, however, make the mistake of drawing a small flask of whiskey from his bag and taking a swig, under the impression that it would warm his insides. This is a commonly held misconception as alcohol can actually worsen hypothermia due to at least two different mechanisms. Firstly, alcohol serves as a vasodilator, which hastens heat exchange with the environment. Additionally, alcohol can again lead to impaired judgment and increased risky behavior. As the night drags on, and perhaps with the contribution of the whiskey, Jack's temperature continues to drop. He is now 32 degrees centigrade at his core and is now moderately hypothermic. His body becomes unable to keep up with the heat losses, and his metabolic rate begins to slow. 
his heart rate decreases, and thus his cardiac output goes down. He begins to hypoventilate, and if you were able to look at an electrocardiogram, you may see the development of atrial arrhythmias such as junctional bradycardia or atrial fibrillation. Looking at his EKG, you may see a J-wave or Osborne wave, which is typically seen in hypothermia, which is a positive deflection between the QRS complex and the ST segment. After many hours have passed, fortunately someone has taken notice of Jack's absence and a rescue team is called. You and a group of exploration medicine trained experts are on the case. After following his ski tracks for several kilometers, you find a man sitting beneath a pine tree, our unfortunate protagonist, who is now your patient. Now is a good time to jump into the approach and treatment of the hypothermic patient. As with any patient in an emergent situation, it is important to remember the ABCs of medicine, which are airway, breathing, and circulation. On initial evaluation, you notice that Jack is unresponsive. He doesn't awake to commands, and in terms of the ABCs, it appears that his airway is clear and not obstructed. It is difficult to tell whether or not he is breathing, and it is difficult to find a pulse as well. It is at this point that the approach of the hypothermic patient differs somewhat from that of someone in the hospital or under normal thermic conditions. Expert guidelines recommend searching for a pulse for at least one minute in the hypothermic patient. This recommendation stems from the fact that the hypothermic patient can become so severely vasoconstricted and may be profoundly bradycardic that it becomes difficult to palpate a pulse though they may be perfusing their essential organs adequately. Another reason is that in hypothermia, patients are predisposed to developing ventricular arrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Any unnecessary initiation of chest compressions may induce VTAC or VFib in these patients. It's also important to mention some contraindications to the initiation of CPR in the severely hypothermic patient. One is a frozen chest wall that is so stiff that it is impossible to carry out adequate chest compressions. Another pertains to avalanche victims. If an avalanche victim has been buried in the snow and has had their airway obstructed with snow and or ice for greater than 35 minutes, unfortunately these patients are beyond recovery and CPR should not be initiated. Fortunately, in our case, Jack falls into neither one of these categories. After about 45 seconds of searching, you are able to find a carotid pulse. However, it is weak and bradycardic. You notice as well that he is breathing, though at a markedly decreased rate. The need to initiate CPR is unnecessary, and you can begin to further evaluate Jack. You notice that in his state, in a nearly comatose state, with profound bradycardia and likely hypotension, that he is severely hypothermic, and if you had to guess, his temperature would likely be 28 or lower. Some other symptoms typically associated with severe hypothermia are pulmonary edema, oliguria, areflexia, and as mentioned earlier, ventricular arrhythmias as well as asystole. Now that you've determined that Jack is still alive, though severely hypothermic, let's discuss some of the initial interventions that you can carry out in the field. It is extremely important at this stage to prevent any further drops in core body temperature, and this can be accomplished by removing any wet clothing and by moving the patient out of the hypothermia-inducing environment, which may not be immediately possible in this scenario as we're in the forest. You decide to remove Jack's wet jacket and replace it with warm, dry blankets and place them on a stretcher in the supine position. This is particularly important in hypothermic patients, as they are predisposed to orthostatic hypotension and therefore must remain flat in the supine position. The risk of orthostatic hypotension 
is due to a state of general dehydration, likely from a decrease in fluid intake and the cold diuresis as described before. When moving hypothermic patients, it is critically important to do so gently. As I mentioned before, hypothermic patients are particularly predisposed to ventricular arrhythmias and any sort of jostling can decrease the threshold even further. So two important concepts to keep in mind are to handle hypothermic patients gently and keep them flat. As you gently remove Jack from the forest, you are doing two important things, removing him from the hypothermic inducing environment and by wrapping him in warm, dry blankets, you are attempting to prevent any further drops in core body temperature. If possible, in the setting of profound unresponsiveness, Jack should be intubated in the field to protect his airway. It is important to mention some interventions that should not be carried out in the hypothermic patient. One of these is vigorous friction rubbing of the extremities. This is contraindicated as it decreases the shivering reflex as well as leads to peripheral vasodilation, which can lead to further heat loss and precipitate hypotension. In the field and during transport, there are some ways you can begin to actively rewarm Jack as you make your way to the hospital. Large electric heating pads, electric blankets, and warm water bottles can be placed in the axillae, on the chest, and on the back to induce core rewarming. It's important to note, however, that small chemical heating pads, such as those used in hand and foot warmers, should not be used, as they don't generate enough heat to adequately raise core body temperature, and the surface temperature of these pads can become so high that it can lead to local burns. Now that Jack is safely en route to the hospital and his core body temperature is actually increasing, let's briefly discuss some of the modalities used in the hospital to treat hypothermia. Treatment of mild and even some forms of moderate hypothermia do not differ too greatly in the hospital when compared to the field, and involves removing the patient from the cold environment, removing wet clothing, and placing them in warm surroundings with warm, dry coverings. As we get to more refractory, moderate, and of course severe hypothermia, there are many active rewarming strategies that are utilized in the hospital. IV fluids, warmed to 40 to 42 degrees Celsius, can be infused into the patient to hasten rewarming. More invasive therapies include warm fluid lavages of the peritoneal and or pleural cavities. In the most severe of cases, where the most aggressive therapies are warranted, there is the option of extracorporeal rewarming, which involves ECMO, cardiopulmonary bypass, and hemodialysis. Jack, on arrival to the hospital, was given warm IV fluids and required brief pleural cavity lavage, but improved quickly and recovered well with a hospitalization of several days. Soon he'll be back to carrying out his outdoor winter activities, though surely he will take additional precautions in the future. Before we go, let's summarize some of the key points we learned today. First, in the severely hypothermic patient, we need to take more time searching for a pulse than is usually warranted. We do not want to initiate unnecessary CPR, as it can induce lethal ventricular arrhythmias. Secondly, when handling hypothermic patients, do so very gently and keep them flat. Again, we do not want to induce arrhythmias, and we want to avoid orthostatic hypotension. And finally, while we can initiate some rewarming in the field, it is crucial to get these patients to a hospital as soon but as safely as possible. Thank you for listening to this episode on hypothermia. Stay warm out there. Thank you for your support of this production. Please subscribe to the podcast and the website, and if you like what you hear, help us produce it by donating money or purchasing our merchandise. Thank you to Emily Stratton, our Director of Social Media Outreach, and to Jeremy Seeker, our Director of Communications. 
Intro and outro music is written and recorded by David Keogh and available at ReverbNation.com slash David Keogh. Special thanks to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the idea and to our donors for making it possible. The Exploration Medicine Podcast is a production of Exploration Medicine. More information on each episode is available through our website at explorationmedicine.com, where you can also contact us with questions, thoughts, and ideas, or post to the discussion forums for each episode.